and welcome to our second episode of our Lost in Science summer series. My name's Stu and on the show this week we are going to replay some of the stories that you may have missed from last year while you are hopefully enjoying something of a break as we also are. This week on the show I'm going to play an interview between Claire and Professor Mari Gertz from the University of Melbourne about 200 years of nursing, which was in fact the anniversary celebrated last year. They discuss the changes in nursing over that 200-year period and the ongoing importance of nurses in medicine around the world. And I am also going to dig up the story that I presented on the medical research surrounding zombie pigs, which you may not remember from last year in all the excitement, but it was one of the oddest stories that I came across uh, in 2020, and I hope you enjoy it later in the show. being the International Year of Nurses and Midwives, all happening during a global pandemic, which has brought into sharp focus the vital role of nurses at the front line of healthcare around the world. To talk to us about why the world needs nurses now more than ever, I have with me Marie Gertz, Professor and Head of Nursing at the Department of Nursing the Melbourne School of Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Marie, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. So, Marie, it is International Nurses Day this week. What does this day symbolise? So, International Nurses Day is obviously celebrated every year, but um, this year, as you mentioned already, it is particularly important because what we're doing this year is commemorating 200 years since the birth of Florence Nightingale, who's widely considered to be the founder of the modern nursing profession. And so each year we do talk about the importance of nursing, but this year we particularly want to highlight the value that nurses play in terms of public health and the delivery of health care to populations. 
and the important role that they play in the pandemic um, is a coincidence, but actually an important coincidence because uh, they are the people who provide healthcare to populations over 24 hours a day, you know, so they're the people providing the surveillance of patients' health status. So they're frontline workers, they work as part of an interdisciplinary team. But importantly, they're there to provide comfort and care to people and to use the science that they have. They, they study at a high level now in universities um, and they understand applied science and humanities and they, they use that in their work with people to ensure that they get the best possible care. And so in, in Australia, we're very fortunate that we have a, a highly skilled nursing workforce and relative to other parts of the world, it is true that the nurses in Australia are able to provide the levels of care that they need to. That is not the case in all parts of the world. So in many parts of the world, there are shortages. There's a global shortage of nurses at the moment. And right. so we wanted to highlight um, that particular issue. Why? Because of the expansive work that they do, the increasing growth of the population generally, and the, the ageing nature of the workforce, the nursing workforce. Um, and it's, it, they are the largest profession that um, provides health care. So um, technology is evolving all the times and treatments, medical treatments are developing. But we really need nurses to be delivering that frontline care and making sure that people are safe. Now, Marie, you mentioned it's been 200 years since Florence Nightingale was born. I'm curious, in your opinion, um, looking back historically, what would you say has changed since then and what has stayed the same for nurses? Well, let's start with what has stayed the same and perhaps some of the legacy of Florence Nightingale. I think that's a really important thing to remember about her. She was a young woman when she went to the Crimea and she, she really contributed in three very, very important ways which remain very pertinent to us today. And the first one is really in infection control in hospitals. So she was a, an early subscriber of what we call sanitary science, which is a broad science. Of course, back in those days, little was understood about viruses in particular or bacteria. Um, but what she did understand and what people at the time understood or enlightened people of the time understood was that there was a link between disease and uncleanly conditions, un unsanitary conditions. And so she was a great proponent of basic hygiene, hand hygiene, keeping people clean and keeping environments free of uh, filth, which was obviously a big issue in the Crimean War when she uh, visited there when she was a young woman and she systematically adopted systems. So she used her influence to adopt systems of, to provide a clean environment for people to ensure that nurses washed their hands and um, physicians and surgeons washed their hands and kept uh, minimised the spread of infection. Now, she didn't really understand how infections were spread in the ways that we do, but nonetheless, these principles were absolutely fundamental to turning around the mortality and, and morbidity of people on the front line. In fact, it was thought that people died more from the battles, the injuries sustained in battles, 
but actually many more died from infection. So she had an important role there and she developed systems for infection control. So the other thing, another thing that she did that was important was that she was a highly educated woman, as a matter of fact. She studied statistics and mathematics and she used her um, abilities as a communicator and her understanding of mathematics and the observations that she made in these hospitals to affect change, to influence change and make hospitals safer places for people to be cared for. So that was the second thing that she did. And finally, the other thing that was important about Florence Nightingale, she was a great humanitarian. So she really cared for the people that she looked after and she was hands-on, as, as all nurses are. She appreciated the importance of providing psychological care for people who, who didn't survive. And she played an important part because she, she did encourage patients to send messages that people that wouldn't survive to send messages to the families to provide comfort to the families. So those are all things that are obviously very important to... Yeah, sounds yeah. very fundamental to um, nursing today. Yeah, so those, so those are the pillars of, of nursing practice today. And she wrote a lot of books and she, the, when she came back to the to Britain at the time she was seen as a hero but she encouraged the donors of a fund that was set up to set up a, an educational school um, for nurses because back in those days nurses weren't regarded highly by the community they weren't trusted they weren't a trusted profession as they are today so today nurses are very well trusted and thought of very highly by the community Back in those days, they, they hadn't enjoyed a good reputation because they weren't a regulated profession. And so what she did, she insisted that the money that was raised be used to set up a school of nursing, and that was the School of Nursing at St Thomas's, which is still um, going today. And that is indeed St Thomas's Hospital is where Boris Johnson was treated for his COVID-19. Oh, really? Yes, that's right. And he was so struck by the by the quality of the care that was provided to him by the nurses that he named the nurses that provided him with that care. And what he noticed about them was their ability to observe and respond to changes in his condition, to just be present with him. So he commented on that. And he talked about the way they initiated interventions to make him safe. And he, he credited them actually with his survival, which is a testament to those nurses, but also to the professional way in which nurses work today. So the second part of your question, you were asking about what's different. And of course, technology and our understanding of disease has evolved remarkably since those times back in the 1850s. Of course, we understand much, much more about viruses and bacteria and um, disease and we have much more sophisticated ways of protecting people from infection and safeguarding the community but still those fundamental pillars remain and the nurses today are still predominantly women but we do have an increasing number of men which is good for having diversity for populations but we also we have the technology to monitor physiological parameters very very closely so People like Florence Nightingale would have been looking intuitively at patterns and observing patterns in people, changes in respiratory rate, 
work of breathing and those kinds of things. We still depend on those, but we have many, many more monitoring tools in our armoury. And you mentioned Boris Johnson, you know, called out the two incredible nurses who were responsible for saving his life. I mean, nurses around the world are on the front line of this global pandemic. Uh, Many of them are risking their lives to provide care for patients. Um, Is this the most dangerous time to be a nurse? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, nursing is a risky profession. There's no doubt about that. Even before the pandemic, you know, nurses do face various challenges to their safety, but um, they do have skills also and they have techniques and they work together to manage those risks. They are highly educated professionals. Yes, it is risky, but there are many safeguards within the system to support nurses and ensure that they are cared for in an appropriate way in terms of their occupational health and safety. Now, that's the case in Australia. Again, I I mention um, the Australian context because it isn't the case in all parts of the world. We are very lucky to be in this country in regards to the, the health response that we've had to be able to flatten the curve and um, manage the the pandemic in the way that we have. But we're also very fortunate because we have a very robust health system. And even though there have been shortages in personal protective equipment and things like that, the governments have worked together to make sure that those safeguards are in place for health workers, including nurses. In your role as um, Professor and Head of Nursing, can you tell me a little bit about the role that universities are playing right now in providing training, whether there's an opportunity to upskill nurses from different, I guess, specialist areas to give them the essential skills to work through this pandemic? Yes, definitely. So universities play a critical role in um, working in partnership with health services. So at the University of Melbourne, we see ourselves as working as partners with the hospitals and we, we identify where the learning needs are for the nursing workforce and mostly that's in the area of specialist nursing practice, although we also provide basic entry to practice education as well. So for us, um, we responded to the COVID-19 pandemic working in partnership with Safer Care Victoria and we used our educational materials to develop a rapid upskills program, was particularly looking at the knowledge nurses needed around the evidence to manage COVID-19. Because as you can imagine, with a new disease such as this that we hadn't seen before, we needed um, a mass evidence and get that in place so that we could actually provide evidence-based education. And so we did that um, in a two-week period. We developed a, a rapid upskills short course with Safer Care Victoria, as particularly looking at the management of acute respiratory failure and the sequelae of uh, COVID-19 in terms of multi-organ dysfunction. So um, these patients are critically ill and there are certain interventions that need to be put in place for them that we wouldn't normally see. There are also significant safety considerations and so the the nurses need to to have the basic information there around that so we're using clinical practice guidelines to form the education and those guidelines are coming from places like the world health organization so for example when we're putting a tube into somebody's airway 
in order to be able to put them on a ventilator, there is a high level of risk to the anaesthetist or the doctor who's putting that tube down and also to the nurses who are connecting the patient to the ventilator. So we had to put special training in place for that. Now, the hospitals themselves, they, they once their nurses have undertaken that basic um, course, they then go on and give them the technical skills, so working mm. in them the hands-on skills to practice in simulation, mm-hmm. to learn that, and they need to learn that as part of a multidisciplinary team. Um, so, Marie, 2020, as I mentioned, it's also the International Year of the Nurse and Midwife. What community understanding and appreciation would you like to see come from this year? So we, we know that nurses are appreciated by the community and this year is really about highlighting the value of nursing work not just for the sake of it but because we need more nurses we need more people to and we need diverse people from the population to aspire to become nurses and to undergo nursing education because nursing is critically important to the attainment of good health and good population-based health for the entire world. So our interest is partly to recognise, obviously, and pay tribute to an amazing workforce who who are well-deserving of the accolades, but more importantly, to attract good people into nursing to make it a career and enjoy the rewards of the profession in terms of the scope of what you might undertake in terms of research in terms of clinical practice and in terms of education. Marie Gertz, thank you so much for joining us today. And, of course, a big shout-out to all the nurses out there um, working very hard. And, Marie, I hope you can come back on Lost in Science and we can talk a little bit more, hopefully after the pandemic. Uh, Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. We do often mention on the show that there is too much science generated all over the world for our little half hour a week to cover. Um, But we do cover a lot of ground, even when we're locked in, as we still are. But... One story that came to my attention this week uh, on the socials, actually, someone was spreading this news story and it quite escaped me from well over a year ago, back in April 2019. Um, I don't know if either of you recall this story. And if you if you are squeamish and you don't really want to hear about, you know, brain death and and animals being experimented upon possibly tune out now because this story does go into some detail about what was going on. But scientists at Yale University published last year that they brought back to life 32 pigs hours after they had died. I totally missed that story, Stu. And possibly more gruesomely, the story was that they were experimenting on just pig heads and brought the pig heads back to life. But This is only part of the story. So what really happened? All right. Now, the concept of brain death is the idea that when blood flow is stopped to the brain, 
it can't absorb enough oxygen to keep functioning. And brains use a lot of energy and they need a lot of oxygen to enable them to do that. So when the brain is deprived of oxygen for too long, it stops functioning and an organism is considered dead. Yeah. Um, you know, other organs, we can restart hearts, we can repair various parts of, of, of organs and other things. There's not really been any way to restart a brain after this has happened. That's pretty much it. We've accepted that for, you know, since, since medicine was a thing. Take that, Dr. Frankenstein. Yeah. Well, <laughs> strangely enough, um, but no, because the brain controls lots of functions of the body and the body doesn't work either. If the brain stops working, they can, they can like, hook people up to machines and, and keep them breathing and all sorts of things, but the brain normally controls that, so you can't sort of keep controlling that without the brain there, except in zombie movies which have some sort of magic biology that only works in zombie movies uh, and they can walk around for I don't know how long. Never has been made clear in any zombie movies I've ever seen. But um, scientists have been able for a long time to collect cells from an organism and keep them alive in vitro, which is in a petri dish or some sort of container in a laboratory with the right nutrient solutions. And they can do this or could do this with brain tissue. The thing about growing cell cultures like that in a type of solution is when the cells use up all the nutrients in it or they produce too much waste, you just take the cells out and put them in fresh solution. And so it's actually easy to culture cells in that way. But they're not functional cells. They're not the organ itself. They're just cells from that organ. And we can keep them alive for various amounts of time. And there are cell lines that have been around for decades like the ones we mentioned in my sorry the the vero cells that were cultured in 1962 yeah, yeah. 1962 yeah. yeah exactly and and yeah so that there are cell lines like that all around the world being used in medical experiments and other experimentation so in a living organ the bloodstream does that job it supplies nutrients it removes excess waste while the cells stay where they are and the blood also supplies oxygen so the Yale scientists believed, much like Herbert West in the story of Reanimator, that they could restore this flow to a brain even after it was removed from the rest of the body. So what they did was they went to an abattoir, they took 32 pigs' heads and removed the brains from the pigs' heads and hooked them up to a machine they called the Brainex. Oh, wow. Okay. And the BrainX delivered a synthetic nutrient solution through the vascular system of the brain as a blood substitute. So they sort of got all of the different vessels coming out of the brain and hooked them into their nutrient solution. Yeah, as far as it goes, there's only a couple of major... Uh, there's, a, there's a major vein and a major artery yeah. going in and out of the brain. So it's not difficult to to find them and hook them up to something like this. So you've got an in-pipe and an out-pipe, basically. Mm. And then they pretty much... So they pumped this artificial blood substitute for six hours through the brains of these disembodied brains of pigs, and they measured all of the activity in the brain, and after a couple of hours, the cells started to fire up again. Oh. So there was... 
cellular activity in the brain and some cellular functions were restored in the brains of the 32 or in the 32 pig brains that they were testing on. Now, what they didn't find was any organized electrical activity as you would see in a functioning brain. What they saw was just cells starting to reanimate, literally. Um, So there's no indication, according to the researchers, of any consciousness in the brains. They, They couldn't see any way there would be any perception in the brains because that electrical activity which shows brain activity, actual, you know, functioning brain, was not present. But they did report shows many cellular functions and other brain activities that were thought to stop irreversibly soon after brain death were able to be restarted hours after the brain had stopped working. They basically did this because they're looking into research for brain injuries. So it was funded by uh, an institute for neuro research in the States. And what they're looking for is ways that they can possibly apply this knowledge to treatments for brain injuries, especially those associated with oxygen supply, like some forms of stroke and other, you know, brain injuries like that. So that that was their intent, but it also obviously raises ethical questions for medical research and treatment, especially where the status of patients might be in question for longer than previously considered. And this could be, you know, one of the big worries is it's going to be especially controversial in the area of organ transplants because organs uh, donor organs have to be removed very quickly to preserve them and or in order to make them still viable for the for the transplant recipient so if there's any kind of delay in getting them from the donor into the recipient that could be a problem and the worry is that people will say well isn't there something else you can do and and that's if these sort of treatments are developed that may actually become an ethical question that doctors will have to answer um what's that what do you mean that with that is a question that they will have to decide whether they can do this to keep the organ going or 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 whether they would be able to somehow restart the brain and therefore you oh, okay. don't get to take the organ and and donate it I see it's, what you mean, yeah. it's it's a it's a bit of a toss-up because do we save this patient or do we save that patient i guess that's always been there with yeah. organ donation but this sort of adds another layer of complexity to it potentially. I was just thinking um, that if you can, if they can like get restart a brain essentially by giving it some nutrients like that, then can you do that to other organs as well? I mean, we know, we always said the brain is kind of the most fragile, but so if you can restart a brain by doing this, can you keep other organs going with a similar kind of nutrient solution? Well, I guess it does raise those sorts of research questions as well, is that, you know, if 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 organ tissue is damaged to the point where it's no longer functioning, is that irreversible or is it something that we can figure out ways of allowing the organ to keep functioning for long enough to repair itself and then we can continue to use mm. that organ and we might, we might be able to move away from organ transplants as well. Um, but, yeah, it's a complicated you know, ethical question. I think the story itself is pretty amazing and I can't believe it slipped past last year. It was in a number of uh, media outlets when I went looking for more details. Um, And it was published in uh, Nature on April 17th, 2019. I'm not exactly sure what overshadowed such a sort of 
massive tr- uh, medical story um, in 2019. But um, and it's obviously groundbreaking research. But it's you know it's one of my favourite things. I guess is when the science fiction and the science sort of get a bit murky about what's real and what's fiction. Well, we, we get closer to the science fiction every year, I think. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost Lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.